Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Stephanie London. Yes, we do. It was a great interview. Stephanie's a romantic comedy author, and so that was fun. She's Mm -hmm. an Australian living in Canada, writing about America. Yes. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) And we talked to her about that, about how she, how she, uh, uh, how she does that, like her word choices and things that she Mm -hmm. does specifically because she's writing for the U S audience as a non-U.S. person. So yes, exactly. Exactly. We talked about newsletters and how to pivot to get newsletter subscribers. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And she also is an organic writer Mm -hmm. and I thought it was really interesting. She said that, that, um, being an, having an organic writing process is just as legitimate as outlining, you know, and a lot of times people, kind of discount that they're like oh mm-hmm. you don't outline mm-hmm. you should and so we talk about organic we've had a, quite a few organic writers on recently so yes it's been interesting so this is a good good interview it is it's a very good interview so what's been going on with you this week um so this week one thing i've been writing of course on the slowest book ever to be written but it will be finished someday <laughs> that's kind of You're how writing i feel. my book <laughs> no that's how i feel i feel like i'm getting slower and slower the more books yeah. i write i'm getting slower yeah. and slower but it, 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 I made progress on it, and that's the main thing. But the other thing that I think people will be interested in is um, um, I'm creating metadata sheets for my books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing that. It was Inez Johnson who came on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and she had a template, mm-hmm. and she shared that. It's in the group, I believe. If it's not, I'll double-check and put it in there. So I'm creating these sheets that have the blurb, the tagline, the publication date, um, I've done, and it was funny. I got started. I was like, this won't take that long. Cause I do have it, all that mm-hmm. in a uh, text file so I can copy mm-hmm. and paste it. And I was like, I'll just move all this over. So it'll be in a format. It'll be easier to find. And then I got to thinking about it. I was like, now, wait a minute. I should have one of these for fiction, mm-hmm. one for nonfiction, <laughs> one for my German translations and one for my French translations. And then I was like, Hmm, time to call in Adriel. <laughs> She's yes, going to help exactly. me. <laughs> so I did most of the fiction one and then she's going to help me fill in all the rest because oh, really when you get into translations, mm-hmm. you got to be able to find all that right. stuff. And, and when you can't read it, it's just, you know, yeah. complicates the process. So anyway, it does. It is. so I will make sure that that link that um, Inez gave us is in the show notes mm-hmm. in case anyone's interested. Yeah, so. that's great. Yeah. So what about you? What are you up to? Uh, writing, still writing, still moving along on the story. Um, have made myself laugh a couple of times. I posted something in my group because I thought it was so funny. And um, you know, so you're back on social media. Oh yeah, I got back on social media this week, and it has proven distracting. Um, <laughs> it just has, and I have considered getting off of it again. That's really how, yeah, uh, but I can't. I mean, I've got. I need to be in my group. Um, I feel like TikTok is a, um, for me, because I'm not uncomfortable making videos. I'm not uncomfortable mm-hmm. embarrassing myself, even though <laughs> none of my videos, only one of my videos has really gone viral or anything. I feel like it's a good medium for me and it is a good way for me to try to find new readers. So that is, so I have to stay on, but you know, yesterday, that's all I did was TikTok videos and which is fine, but I can't do that every day, you know, and, but I did bank some, so I have them and I'll Mm -hmm. just post them. Uh, But still it, it has still been distracting. And my husband did point that out because I said, I didn't get my trotting done today. And he said, how many TikTok videos did you get done? I'm like, yeah, I know. but that and then I was on the uh I was yeah. really fortunate to be asked to be on the Rebel Author podcast yeah. guest and Sasha and I had the best conversation about romance and then about kind of my business model and um 
and after listening to because I listened to it because we had we had recorded that, I don't know, about a month ago, a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I can't remember yesterday, but <laughs> I just want to make sure I hadn't said something stupid. And, um, but after listening to it, I was like, I just love romance. I mean, you know, yeah. it was just, it was kind of, and she's such a great interviewer. She, she really has is. Such great yeah. questions. And she's really curious mm-hmm. and interested in stuff. And so, but anyway, it's uh, the Rebel Author Podcast. And I think it's, I think it's episode one of, 112. Yeah, we'll um, link to it in the show yeah, notes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that pop up on my uh podcast feed today. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but yeah. I'm looking forward to it. it so that'll it be was good. really fun. It's really fun. And I got to say a couple of bad words. So that was <laughs> something I won't let you do on this podcast. <laughs> no, Sarah won't let um, <laughs> I let it rip over there. Um, and then I have watched a really good show. Uh it's called Vienna Blood. Ooh. And it's on PBS. And so there's one full season and then there's a second season it's set back in the 1800s in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And so the um, Sigmund Freud's kind of disciple, yeah. you know, I've disciples seen it. I mean, I've or, seen it. Yeah. And, but it's a, it's a mystery. And, mm-hmm. um, but I have really, it's really good. So I think if you looking for something to binge, you might want to check that out. It's being okay. blood. All right. Well, I will check that out. Definitely. So I have something I was going to say about your, um, oh, the TikTok and going back on social media. Mm-hmm. So I said a couple of weeks ago, I was starting the market better, faster class. Yeah. And so I'm finishing that up. And if anybody is trying to figure out, cause it's a month long class. If anyone's yeah. trying to figure out like how they should approach marketing. Mm-hmm. It's really good because it goes through and it's like, this is how readers discover you. This is how you stay engaged with your readers. And I thought when you get done, when I get done, it mm-hmm. it's going to help me kind of refine what I'm right. doing and make sure I'm doing what I need to do right. and right. what would be most effective for me and my personality. For mm-hmm. instance, I know that TikTok is not for me. So mm-hmm. I'm not going on there. And because I know that's not for me, it's easier for me to say, I'm not even going to worry about it instead of feeling pressured to do it. Right. Um, And, and so like Instagram, nothing wrong with Instagram. And I will go on Instagram every once in a while, but y'all I've been trying to grow my Instagram for a year, like dedicatedly trying Mm -hmm. to grow it. It hasn't grown hardly any, I mean, like less than a hundred people. That's what I'm talking about. And, and so if I can, is if there's a video from TikTok that will, that will translate to Instagram, I'll put it there, but I'm not, that's not where I'm going to spend yeah. my time. I, yeah. for whatever reason, my personality, I mean, I, it's just not the right place, right. but um, I have enjoyed TikTok. And well, I you have, enjoy it and I do you do it well and there. I just. And while I was gone, my TikTok kept growing. Mm-hmm. And so people were still uh, watching my videos and stuff. And I sort of, this Tuesday, when I posted my first video, mm-hmm. um, I found my rom-com readers for the first oh, time. Like, cool. like I knew they were rom-com readers. Uh-huh. And I don't know what happened. I don't know why the algorithm, because I don't, I use the same hashtags, Mm -hmm. but I did find my, some rom-com readers. And so that was very, that was very exciting because, uh, and they weren't, they weren't familiar with me. So that's good too. So that's widening your audience. So that's discovery. So it's awesome. So I only have one more thing. I'm going to show you this cover of this book that I got It's called body beats to build on Mm. by April W. Gardner. And it's just, it's a list. It's a fiction writer's resource. It's got just different descriptions of different things. These things that we've always talked about, how nice it would be if we had a list. And so chapter four, appendages, legs, knees, arms, hands and fingers, making a fist, fist or hands on hips, pointing, miscellaneous. So, oh my gosh, that's so, so good. Like you can just go to it and it's just got a list of different kind of like if you're stuck or you're yeah. find yourself doing the same thing over and over again. So I got it and I would recommend that. So that's anyway, good. I thought you would be interested oh. in that. Yeah. Well, we talked about writing something like that because we yeah, I know. Like, oh, no. be oh, so helpful. More, I know. One more thing, because I don't think I recommended it last week. Becca recommended it um, okay. on in her Patreon, but the, uh, the book 4,000 Weeks, did I recommend that? No, but I heard, I think, um, yeah. Joanna um, Penn also mentioned that on her podcast as yeah. well. 
it is a it's a it's a time management. It's it's actually four thousand weeks time management for mortals. I think is the actual name of the book, and mm-hmm. it's by Oliver Berkman. And okay. um, it's the first time management book that hasn't made me feel like crap about myself. So, um, <laughs> so it, highly recommended. Five stars. I highly recommend it. <laughs> but it has been really good. I, I've okay. I've learned some stuff, but I've also gone okay. I'm not. I'm not on the wrong path or I see how when I've done that, those things, some things in the past, they haven't worked for me. Well, they haven't worked for me for a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, he, it's really good. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. So. Well, cool. All right. Well, that's lots of resources and ideas and stuff. So we'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Yeah. And we should probably get on with the interview because it's super good. And yes. Stephanie was just delightful. She yes. Was really fun to talk to. Yes. So here we go. Here's Stephanie. Well, today we are really excited to have Stephanie London with us. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're very excited that you're here. I've been looking forward to this talk. So yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's read your bio. Stephanie London is a multi-award winning USA Today bestselling author of over 30 contemporary romances and romantic comedies. Stephanie's books have been called genuinely entertaining and memorable by Booklist, and she has won multiple industry awards. Originally from Australia, Stephanie now lives in Toronto with her husband. She loves reading, collecting perfumes, and teaching people how to use Aussie slang, which sounds Ah, intriguing. Very good. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, tell us how you got into writing, Stephanie. I am a pretty cliche story. I must admit I was that kid who couldn't get grounded because being sent to my room was the best thing ever. That's where all the books were. And I churned my way through Babysitter's Club books and all of those type of things when I was young. And I, even as a kid, I wrote stories for myself. I would write and illustrate my own books, Um, but I didn't sort of take it seriously until I got um, until I got married, actually, and I went on my honeymoon and um, I had a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey that my mm-hmm. sister had given me as a bit of a like, oh, you should take this on your honeymoon, <laughs> as you do. And um, I, I found a, um, a store where we were in Fiji that had a bunch of um, old Mills and Boone books and I had run out of things to read, which happens to me a lot when I go on holidays. Mm-hmm. So I bought a bunch of them and started reading them. And I hadn't read a lot of romance before and I started getting really into these books and I said to my husband, I'm like, oh, I this is like something about this feels important. I feel like I could write one of these books. Oh, that's awesome. And he was like, well, you should you should do it then. And so I literally on my honeymoon, I had a notebook and a pen and I started jotting <laughs> some things down and came back home and told my mum about it. And she's like, you know, you've always been that kid with a nose in a book, so go for it. That's awesome. What great support. Yeah. That's kind of an unusual story because most people are kind of discouraged. So that's wonderful. Yeah. I, I've had a lot of, I, my mom's a big reader. My sister's a big reader. My grandmother's a big reader. So we're like a big book family. Mm-hmm. And so I've, and my husband is also hugely supportive as well. So I've been extremely lucky to yeah. have a lot of support right from that very like beginning kind of moment. Yeah. Me too. Me too. The, the most, um, and it's not even negative, but one of my sisters did say, well, you don't have a job, you know, when oh the, after I had stopped working, but she was, we, she was referencing something specific. And I was like, no, she's not, I'm not going to get upset. Cause they are, they're super supportive. My husband, I mean, everybody has just been, I've just not had one person go, Oh, really? You know, why would you do that sort of thing? So that's uh that's I like best case scenario. Very, very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, you do get a few odd questions here and there oh, when yeah. you tell people what you write, <laughs> being yes. a romance author, we yeah. sort of get, you know, I do get those typical like, oh, what does your husband think of the, the smutty scenes and all of that kind of stuff that I always just roll my eyes at a little yeah. bit. But exactly. generally speaking, most people are super curious about it. And I have found everyone's been like really interested to find out how the industry works. And so I've been very, very lucky. Mm-hmm. Well, what is your definition of success? Um, I that's I feel like that's a question that could change on like any day that you ask it. But (laughs) you know, it's a kind of thing that like one day means something and the next day it means something else. But I think for me, I'm the kind of person that always has to be learning something new. I have to be really like mentally engaged and 
I was also that kind of person that like used to change jobs all the time because I would get bored. Oh, okay. And this career for me is about something that's continually growing and evolving and keeping me interested. So it's, you know, financial growth and audience growth, but also that I'm continuing to develop my skills and try new things and push my own boundaries with my stories as well. I have to have like both pieces of that puzzle. Otherwise I kind of lose interest. That's That's really great. I love that. I so identify with that because Mm -hmm. I'm always... I think that's one reason I do a lot of the things I do is I want to try them and mm. they're new and they're different. I want to try them, not necessarily writing in different, extremely different genres, but just kind of related, you mm. know, like going from cozy to historical mystery. That's not that yeah. much of a leap, but it's enough that it's different, that it keeps me engaged and like mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Totally get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if it's just being able to follow like a rabbit hole of a particular like subject mm-hmm. for for a single book, that just that ability that every book kind of like gives you something new to get excited about it, to sink your teeth into. Right. And then obviously, you know, hearing from readers and seeing the like increase of interest in books over time is also really rewarding. Right. Well, I it's funny you say that because I just sent an email to a Wagyu um beef far beef rancher uh to or beef ranch today to see if I could come do a tour and kind of hang out and see how their operation works because my current book the guys from Texas um and I had just decided that he was going to be a rancher but I watched Queer Eye uh last night and there was a Wagyu I'm not saying Wagyu yeah Wagyu beef yeah yeah Wagyu beef uh rancher on there and I was like ah this is what I'm going to do. So there are several kind of in, not in the area, but you know, within driving distance of me. And um, so I'm like, Ooh, I want to go find out what, cause they do like ranch to processing to market. I mean, they do everything, you know, these, these ranchers because it's all hormone free and everything, but I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to go learn something new. I'll wear my (laughs) boots. I'm very excited. So tell us what you wish you'd known about writing and craft. Biggest lesson for me over the years has definitely been that, like, coming to understand that, like, organic parts of the process are just as legitimate as things that are planned. So, I like have tried to become a plotter so many times. Mm -hmm. I've tried so hard, but it's just I lose interest in the story. I like the harder I plot, the less likely I am to follow it. And I just go off on a tangent and write something else. I just like. I just can't do it. I have to let the story come naturally. And it's the same with every book where I kind of end up at a point in the story where something just clicks and all of a sudden I can see the whole thing and I understand why all the pieces are there and everything slots into place. And I cannot shortcut that moment by trying to figure things out at the beginning. So for me, just like letting go of that, trying to plot and just allowing my brain to kind of do its thing naturally has been like, a bit of a pressure off, really. Wow, that's so amazing. I love how you put that. I, I really, I don't think I've ever put it quite like that. And I I feel the exact same way. So uh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I had a, um, so I've done some coaching with Becca Simon, the Write Better mm-hmm. Fast, as I know yes. probably a lot of listeners would know that yes. name by now. Um, and she described it once as being like a snow globe author. So some people can hold the globe and then they can figure out everything that's in the globe. And other people need to be the little person inside the globe, exploring and seeing everything. And I'm like that kind of a person. I need to be in the story in order to actually see what's going on. And that the second that I'm not writing and I try, to sort of force what I think is going to happen, it's almost like something switches and I can't yes. see anything. It's like a light goes off. Yep. Me too. That is so interesting. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say when you described I it. today, so there you go. <laughs> I was going to say when you described it, it's like you need to be in the manuscript, yes. right, to mm-hmm. do it. Like, yeah. And like how far ahead do you know? Like do you have to get into a certain point before you can kind of see how it's all going to fit together and is it always the same point or is it different? for each book it's definitely different for each book and I think sometimes that's connected to like how long that story has been percolating in my brain before I start writing it because sometimes I have an idea and I just happen to have a space in my schedule to start writing quickly and those ones tend to be I 
take more time to get through the story because I haven't had that like bank of thinking about it. Right. Whereas like, and, and also the further I go into the story, the more easily it comes. So by the time I hit about the like 75% mark, I can usually see all the way to the end and my word count shoots up at that point because it's like it's just pouring out of me. But in the middle of the book, it's a real struggle because I can only write as far as I can see. And some days I have the energy to get a better word count out, but I've just got, I just can't see anything in the story anymore. So I have to kind of let things process overnight and come back to it the next day. Right. Yeah. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that. I'll have like a big kind of overview of like big points that I know I need to get to, but like the details of how it's all going to fit together. I have to mm-hmm. be writing it. Um, I'm not one of those people that can write like a 30,000 word draft and then work off oh, of gosh, that. I'm done if I do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's move on. <laughs> why, why would we waste all that time? Why would I go back? <laughs> well, what about marketing? What do you wish you'd known about marketing? Um, marketing is such a, like, a funny part of this job. And I, I think that that's because I'm like, by nature's quite a number person. Like, every I re- have recorded every writing day since 2014 of how many words I've written. I love the numbers and the like being able to track things. And I think sometimes that in marketing that has led me to get a little bit caught up in just the pure numbers of marketing, the number of followers, the number of likes that something gets, subscribers, things like that. And really for me, the big learning was that smaller but more engaged is way more effective than large and not as engaged. And so learning to kind of pivot my efforts towards creating a marketing exercise that is more engaging, even if it reaches a a smaller amount of people, is actually going to get a bigger result than, say, doing a bunch of competitions to get people on your newsletter where you might end up with a really bloated and kind of messy, disengaged list. So that has, has been a thing I've noticed over the last couple of years that I've really pivoted some of my marketing activities to be a bit more quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. That's really great. That's that's so smart because uh, that word bloated. Uh, yeah, I, I've had that. You know, I've had a list, and about two thousand people were not engaged on that list at all. And I got rid of them, and everything just seemed to turn around um, mm. when I did that. So um, I know you're not supposed to get rid of them, but I did because I didn't want to pay for them, and they weren't. I just could tell they were not engaging you know that the numbers told me they weren't engaging so and I think it can affect things like say deliverability with your newsletter if you've got this huge list and people aren't opening it then the newsletter providers are going to be like well this is not very valuable Mm -hmm. information or worse it's spam and then stick it in the spam folder Mm -hmm. so I had a, I did the same thing. I had a, a, quite a huge cull of my list a while ago. It was terrifying at the moment, but it, the list ever since then is now back up to what it used to be. But the open rates and the click rates are so much healthier than they were before, and it's a much more engaged list. Yeah, the, those click rates. Um, those are. I mean, I think right now that's what people are saying we should look at, and mine are mm-hmm. so much better. So yeah, yeah. it's great. So. Well, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you have any tips for somebody like if they feel like they don't have the quant- the quality subscribers, like you said, you kind of pivoted. Do you have any tips for somebody like how you did that? Yeah. So um, for me, it is it is pretty basic advice. I'm sure people have heard this stuff before, but I have made sure that anytime I do an activity where I'm going to put people on my list to be really strategic about making sure that the if there are other people involved in that activity, that there's a lot of audience alignment and any kind of um, sort of audience growth activities I do are with other people that are playing in a very similar area in the market and not just because, you know, romance is such a huge, broad genre that you could end up with people that are either want closed door books or you might want pe- end up with people that want this like super steamy stuff. And my books are kind of weirdly in the middle of all of that. So I, I did a, um, a joint project with another author um, in Christmas this past year, and we wrote two novellas and put them out and had a strong like call to action um, lead magnet sign up in the back of that and did it as a 99 cent thing purely for audience expansion. But I was very particular about the person that I did that activity with, knowing that their audience is going to be the kind of audience that would like my book. So I'm getting the right people onto my list. 
Very good. That's so smart. Yeah. Super smart. Super smart. What assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career and did they turn out to be right or wrong? I assumed that every book you wrote would be, it would kind of bring the same thing to Mm. your career, that every book you put into your backlist is going to expand the audience a similar amount. And even saying that out loud sounds a bit silly to think of it like that, but I, I guess that's just, I thought, you know, one book more is, you know, another book in the backlist and they all kind of equal the same, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had some books that have gone, you know, great guns and have brought huge amounts of people to me. And then I've yeah. had a couple of ill-advised projects that were perhaps not super on brand that didn't yeah. do anything at all. Yeah. And yeah, so that's helped me, I think, to make better decisions now, especially moving into indie, that I am picking the right projects mm-hmm. to work on um, and balancing my desire to kind of go off and write about whatever versus with like stuff that's actually going to move the needle on my mm-hmm. career and fill the backlist with the right kind of things. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think I felt uh, I felt that too. You know, each book is just going to, I'm just, it'd be like a stair step and I'll just, yeah, keep, yeah. No, it's so more of a slide. <laughs> And then you crawl up and then you slide and then you crawl. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the stock market, right? Like it, when you zoom it, out, yes. it looks like it's going all up. But then when you zoom in, it's like, oh, there was a big dip yes. here and a huge yeah. spike there. And that's kind of what every book does. It'll have a different kind of impact. But overall, if you're continuing to put books out, hopefully you're moving in that upward direction. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Well, have you ever had a mistake that turned out to be a good thing? We've, we're, you know, like we're big on lessons learned, so... <laughs> Yeah, I think early in my career, like I'm I'm very much a rule follower. So I have this like, I assimilate rules very easily. So someone tells me that like, this is a rule. I'm kind of inclined to follow it. And that can be both a good thing and a bad thing. I think it, it can be a bad thing because like not everybody knows what they're talking about. And some of these right. things are definitely not rules, but it's also a good thing because it's helped me to really learn the parameters of my genre very quickly and understand reader expectations and to make sure that my books are marketable. But a mistake that I made, it was that my first book had a sports hero. And this was, I was writing this back in 2012 when paranormal was still really huge. Sports heroes weren't really as much of a thing. And someone said to me, oh, you're never going to sell that. It's got, especially not only sports, it was an Aussie rules football player, which is about uh, the most esoteric <laughs> sports person you could possibly pick. <laughs> I was, I didn't know any better. I was an Australian person writing a book set in Australia with an Aussie footballer uh, who has to go and take ballet lessons for rehab for an injury. And uh, there were a few people that said to me, yeah, yeah, the, that book is never going to go anywhere. That's just too weird. And I, I did end up selling that book Um and it was my first ever published book. So I think that oh, being wow. in that yeah. naive space and not listening to that so-called rules and advice mm-hmm. might have been a mistake, but it was also a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. That sounds like a great book. Sounds interesting to me. I was, was going to say, I like it. I was waiting for you to say, didn't he develop magical powers? And that's how you <laughs> ended it all. There were definitely definitely problems in that book that needed to be corrected in the editorial process for sure, but no magic powers. (laughs) What's the biggest mindset change you've had uh, to make during your career? It's probably going a little bit back to that like stock market analogy in that success isn't a linear thing. Mm -hmm. And I come from a corporate background, used to work in the banking industry back in Australia, and it was a very like sort of rigid environment. I knew every year what my KPIs were, what I had to do to succeed and get a bonus and tick all the boxes. And coming from that environment and then working in a creative job was like a huge change of pace and a lot of expectations I had to fix in myself in order to be happy doing this job. And that sometimes you can do everything right and a book just doesn't take off the way that you want it to. And sometimes I have books that have done really well that I was convinced that that was going to be like a giant dumpster fire. So you just can't tell there's so much of this job that's out of your hands. And so I really had to let go of the idea that I was fully in control of what was going to happen with my career. I can only make the best decisions that I can, but at some point it is out of my control and just kind of being a little bit at peace with that. Right. Are there any things you do to kind of help yourself like in that process, like 
Yeah, I think because I think that when people get upset about the way things are going, often it's a mismatch between expectation and reality. Mm -hmm. And so in my goal setting, I make a real effort to have a mixture of those big pie in the sky, everything goes right and the stars align goals. But then I also put in a lot of those goals that are purely around things I can control so that I know that even if the stars don't align, I'm still able to feel satisfied that I've met a good portion of my goals because I have some focused around the things that are directly in my power. Right. Right. That's, that's really smart. I hope people are listening to that because there is just so much we can't control, but, but I do that with launches. Like I'm, I say, you know, based on my last launch, based on what I'm um, spending now and all that, this is kind of my minimal expectation. This is what I think I can realistically hit. And then this is the pie in the sky goal. But I still hold all of those pretty loosely because they're, you just don't know. I mean, I have a friend who's been waiting two months for Amazon to put their book up. They've, they've loaded two copies and they refuse to load a third because they're afraid they're all going to publish at the same time, which Amazon said could happen. So, I mean, she, is t- she has no control over that at all. And she's handling it much better than I probably would. But um, they're just things you can't control. So I, I think you're very wise. Yeah, and I think I think stretch goals for me is has yes. been a really like positive thing. So not just having only the pie in the sky goal. I was watching a um, there's a guy that does productivity videos on YouTube, and he said something that really resonated with me about goal setting, is that when you're setting goals, that you should have the goals set from two perspectives. One from your ideal, I get up at 6am, which I definitely do not, in the morning and eat greens all the time. And, you know, the goals from that perspective. And then you should have the goals from the perspective of you that's had a really rough week and it's Friday night and you just want to have a drink. And if you set the goals from both of those perspectives and find something in the middle, that that's kind of where the true goal actually should be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, not super out of possibility yeah, and not like so easy that you could do it by eight 30 in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, right, we've talked about um, transitioning from corporate work to creative. So, but you've also transitioned from traditional publishing to indie publishing. So what has your experience been with that? And do you have any uh, advice on yes. people who are trying to transition from traditional to indie? Yeah, it's been a really interesting experience. And I guess technically at the moment, I'm still hybrid because I still have some trad books coming out while I'm doing the indie thing. But I I knew from the beginning that I wanted to publish my own books. Like that has been a goal for me from the beginning. And I have a huge amount of respect for people that go indie right from the jump because there's so much to learn. And I think if I had have just published the first version of my first book, that would not have been a good idea. So I'm very (laughs) glad that I got some editorial guidance at that point. I think the big thing for me has been learning uh, firstly that not all contracts are good contracts, which I think for people in the trad space, sometimes it can feel like, well, any contract in this environment is a good thing. And I can tell you that's absolutely not the case. And that just because you have a contract doesn't mean that you can't undo aspects of that contract, Mm. like exiting out early. So I think it's really important for people that want to make the transition if they're not happy with a contract they have and the publisher they're working with, um, especially if they have an agent, you have options, like you're never trapped where you think you are. So that's like a really important thing I like to tell people is just always know that you have a choice. You're never trapped where you are. Um, And I think the other thing that's been interesting is that you can't assume that the whole audience is going to cross over Mm. from trad into indie. And I started off in category romance, which is like a very specific thing. And I thought when I started writing these longer mass market books, that the audience would transfer and they don't, Uh, only some of them do. And it's the same going from trad to indie. And it's funny because I feel like in indie, I'm actually capturing a whole bunch of other Mm -hmm. readers that might not have picked up my trad books. And I'm also losing some of the ones that are only interested in going into Barnes and Noble and picking up a book off the shelf. So that sort of idea that the audience doesn't move around as much as I thought was kind of like a bit of a surprise 
Um, and I feel like in the indie side of things, I am sort of starting to not rebuild because I, obviously I do still have a pretty decent size audience. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, there are people that will probably only pick up the books that I put out in print this year versus the books that I put out in indie and vice versa. So that I have found really interesting. Wow, that is so interesting. I, I guess I didn't. I guess in romance, I guess I just assume they would trans, they would cross over. Why do you think that is that they don't go from trad to indie? I like that's a tough thing to try and figure out because my books are all the same. I don't write different books right. in indie that I do in trad, except for the fact that in India I have a bit more flexibility and I tend to set those books in Australia rather than setting them in the US because that's what's easier to get a contract with. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if it's to do with purchasing behavior because I think that there's be, definitely yeah. people that just like to go and browse a bookstore mm-hmm. and just pluck something random off the shelf that catches their eye. And they're not necessarily the people that are going to sign up for a newsletter and buy, mm-hmm. you know, a pre-order the new release digitally or those kind of things. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. Cause like, I think my print books have done better in print than digitally and then obviously in India, it's a largely digital market with some uh, print-on-demand elements. So I, I, I feel like purchasing behavior maybe had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that in the cozy world, like the, the traditionally published cozies, those people, they really, they do enjoy going to the bookstore. And, you know, the people who buy mass market cozy mysteries, that's, they love going and browsing and getting their books. And I noticed that too, when I went indie, that a lot of people, like I found this whole new group of people that were buying books and they were interested in eBooks. And I, I have a little crossover, but there, and I don't know too, I wonder if it has to do with uh, recommendation algorithms, because mm-hmm. like if you buy a whole bunch of, you know, mass market cozies, then that's what they're going to keep recommending to you. They're probably not going to recommend, you know, so it's, I think it's a combination maybe of those two very, mm-hmm. and I think people think, Oh, I'll go hybrid and I'll just add more readers. You know, I'll keep these ebook readers that I have and I'll add these new layers on top. And that may not be the case, which mm-hmm. is very interesting to think about. So I don't know. Yeah, it is. And I, cause I think I'm very much a voice reader. So if I find an author and I really like their voice, I yeah. don't, kind of care so much about the format or even this even the genre to be honest Mm -hmm. I'll read across genres if I like the way that someone writes whereas I don't know I think perhaps that's maybe not indicative of like the average reader of people that are buying our books so they might be a bit more niched down than that yeah so have you gotten the rights back on any of your trad books I have gotten the rights back on one book so far with plans to secure that going forward yeah okay. so I've very had a very a day of combing through my contracts to figure out and that's something else I would definitely recommend to people is that you know always understand what your reversion clauses are in your contracts and because sometimes they revert at a point in time sometimes they revert associated with a number of sales so if it dips below so I have a spreadsheet where I track every time I get a royalty statement how many it's sold in that year so I know if any have drip, dropped below that um, classified as for sale clause amount mm-hmm. and to kind of really keep my eye on that because the publisher's obviously never going to let you know, hey, your book's out of, you know, would you like, <laughs> right, no. Right. <laughs> You're going to need to send several emails and kick up a stink to get it back. But, yeah. yeah, to keep to really understand what's in the contract and even going forward if people are wanting to be hybrid and signing new contracts to really make sure that the reversion clauses are nice and clear and you know how you can get the book back if need be. Yeah. And so you're still... Are you still signing, like, are you still actively selling books to traditional publishers now? Um, I haven't. I sold one contract last year and actually was in a completely different genre than romance. It was a whole separate (laughs) kind of thing. Um, But in romance at the moment, I just have one contract with a publisher I really enjoy working with and have a good relationship with. Um, And we will see how that goes. But at the moment, my focus is on building the the indie side of things. That's so great. That's really interesting. I never, you know, this is traditional publishing is something that is pretty foreign to me because I just didn't pursue that. So, yeah. And I I think it's, it's, I don't know, it was one of the reasons I thought it might be fun to talk about it is because I think that there's a lot of information out there 
for people who are indie publishing. Like I've been to RAM and a few of those yeah. conferences and they're fantastic, but there's not always a lot of information for people like me that have started in one place and are looking to come over with a backlist that they don't necessarily control. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a bit of an odd situation of like, I have 30 something books, but I can't really do that much with them so like how do you go about getting things reverted and how do you go about untangling contracts and all of that kind of stuff yeah yeah Yeah. it's a whole nother world and it's just like you just it's it is very different from indie publishing so yeah well and it also and when you know anytime sadly um maybe that indie authors talk about trad authors i mean trad publishing it's not always very favorable and clearly you've had a good experience. So I, I think that's encouraging too, because, you know, I think it's important to know what you want from something. Cause like yeah. I've always, I get a lot of people, especially now that I'm in this transition coming to me and saying, why are you doing this now? Like what's the pros and cons of both sides. And I've had some terrible experiences in the trad world as I'm sure most trad authors have, but at the same time, I also have had translations in 20-something countries. Mm -hmm. And I, so now as an indie author, when I go and perhaps try to sell subrights or things like that, I can say I have an established presence in these Mm -hmm. countries Mm -hmm. because of the stuff that's been done with the publisher. So there is definite pros and cons. And I'm very much a fan of like, there is no one correct side to all of this. It really depends on the individual person and their specific goals and all of that kind of stuff. And what you want. Yeah. Like you said, your goals, because I think, I think people, they, they lose, I think some people lose sight of the goals. You know, they're, they're like, if, if a lot of money right out of the gate is your goal, well, first of all, you're probably in the wrong business, but second of all, Second of all, it may not be either one of them. I mean, you know, depending on your situation, it could be trad would be because you might get a deal, a big deal there. Or, oh, sorry. So go ahead and ask the next question, Sarah, because <laughs> okay. my dog is losing his mind. Okay. Well, um, so we also wanted to ask you about being an international author and writing for the U.S. market. So describe a little bit about like uh, where you are and how how that changes how you write. Yes, so I'm from Australia, originally born and raised, and then seven years ago, I moved to Toronto, Canada with my husband. Mm -hmm. But in that time, I became published and have primarily established a readership in the US. So I I have readers all around the world, and especially with all the translations, I definitely have people all over the place. But by and large, my audience is in the US. Um, And I have been working with US publishers mostly to date. And then now as an indie author, I'm back to writing books set in Australia, but still selling them to a primarily American market. Mm -hmm. And all of that has one made for the fact that I never know what to call anything because all the words are now muddled (laughs) up in my head and I get them wrong all the time. And two, it's... A very tricky balance to maintain the authenticity of an Australian story for my readers that are in Australia while also making it accessible to people in the US and understanding that there's probably words and cultural elements and things that they're not inherently going to understand and not um, isolating them by not giving some kind of explanation for those things. So I'm always kind of walking a tightrope of like trying to keep both of those audiences happy. Yeah. Yeah. Because like a Chris, a US Christmas book and a Australian Christmas book are, are going to be two different things because yeah. one is in summer and one is in winter. And so, you know, I mean, just as an, a very obvious example. So I think that that would be really, really difficult. So how do you kind of, how do you overcome that? How do you get, get around that uh, in your writing? Do you, do you have beta readers? Do you have editors who um, kind yeah, of I kind of use a couple of different, I'm, I'm constantly on Facebook saying, hey, do people understand what this word means? Because I just don't know anymore. I do the um, same thing, but it's because I'm from a small town. So yeah. And language is so like the language specific to a location is such an important part of making a story from that area yeah. really sing. I think like I'm, you know, I can never call a jumper a sweater because the Aussies would just be like, what are you doing? Yeah. So I have a glossary in the back of my Aussie um, indie books where I just, any word that's in there that's a, a bit of a weird Australian thing, I put a little um, explanation of what it means and then what a word in like, you know, in America or the UK might be so people know what it is. 
And I try really hard to, when I'm writing, be very contextual so that even if that specific word doesn't make sense, that overall in the context of that paragraph or sentence, that it makes sense. Um, the editor that I use is a, she's in New Zealand and I think she's from Britain originally. So she is going to catch me on any Americanisms that I have adopted since moving over to this part of the world and make sure that they're kind of cleaned out of the book. Um, but then I also have some American beta readers that will read the Aussie stories and be like, I don't know what this word means. Right. So, because every book that I edit, I find, I swear, I find another word that I think is universal and then isn't. So it's just every time that happens, I just add it to my list and put the glossary in the back. And I think people enjoy that part of my stories because it's like a little bit of travel and education along with their romance as well. That's something a little bit different. So they seem to really like it. I was thinking you should put that on your website. That's something really fun to have on your website too, because um, I think a lot of people, would, especially if they enjoy your books, they would really enjoy that. So yeah. yeah, and we have some very strange sayings. Budgie smugglers is what I like to teach people, which ah. is our, what we call speedos. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Well, my um, my d- uh, developmental editor and my editor are both from New Zealand, and my developmental editor, she was this last book she was reached and there's a phrase that says he was loaded for bear, which means oh. he was angry and ready to take on, you know, have the fight. And she said, we don't have bears over here. And I've never <laughs> heard this phrase, but it's become my new favorite phrase. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And my, my editor will say, we don't say this, but if you say it in Texas, then go ahead and use it. If not, you might want to change it to this or, or think yeah. about changing it. Yeah. So it's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. I think it would be challenging too, because, you know, like the world, we're becoming more um, the same in some ways. Like, like if you think about like Ted Lasso, that's been a hit like everywhere. It has Worldwide, a, yeah. 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 So like, I think there's some things that we're maybe losing some of our regional differences. Mm. So it probably makes it really challenging to know when to use certain terms. Like I'm sure there are things that have become more common, you know, over time that, so yeah, I I think that language is always a challenge. It is period. So how many, how many indie books do you have out now? So I've only got two at, well, and a lead magnet, so two at the moment, um, but I've got plans for a further couple coming out this year and and then sort of four at least a year mm-hmm. beyond that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the lead magnet, tell us what you do with that and how you've used it and have you grown yeah, so your list with it? I have, yeah. It was originally part of an anthology, which I think is how a lot of us end up with our lead magnets, yeah. um, but it was a story that's connected to the um So interestingly, the world that I created for my small town originally started off with my trad books and the publisher wanted to move on after two books, but I loved it so much that I was like, no, I want to do this and got permission to kind of break it away from the trad and use it for myself. So I set a a novella in that world and made sure that I introduced a couple of characters that would be coming in the books to follow so that there's a nice push into the next story. And then I'm also using a um, sort of like a bonus epilogue that people Mm -hmm. have to sign up to the newsletter for in the back of each of the books. Mm -hmm. So as they continue to come out, I'm noticing a big uptick of that into my newsletter as well. So it's sort of like over time fleshing out the world. Um, And then something that I also did with the lead magnet is I created a specific version that wasn't directly tied to this sign up of my newsletter, but had a, um, an extra epilogue in the back and I approached some of my author friends and said hey I'm trying to get the word out about this world Um, would you be interested in offering your readers a free book and just with a specific download link so it wasn't available on any platforms or anything like that so that I could see how many copies of that book were going out and what the sign up rate from the back was Mm-hmm. onto a specific list on my newsletter so that I could track it and that brought me some new people who hadn't found my books before as well that's a great idea that's a great idea um in fact I'm going to write that down because I, <laughs> I don't think I've done that um that's I your free book I that I give away but I have never said hey you want to put my free book in your newsletter uh that's so weird why haven't I done that um but also uh, for people who may have just tuned into this podcast, 
explain what a lead magnet is because, you know, I, I, for a long time I had no, you know, I was listening to podcasts and people would say it and I would be like, I don't know what that is. I don't know, you know, and I was too embarrassed to ask. So um, go ahead and explain it. Yeah, so a lead magnet is just a cookie to get someone to sign up for your newsletter list or to do some other activity that you want them to do. But I think in the author world, it's mostly to sign up for a newsletter list. So you can have a page on your website that promotes the book and they click a link. And when they agree to receive the free book, it also puts them onto your newsletter list automatically using a service like BookFunnel or something like that. Yeah, very good. And it can be a book or a novella or short story or something. Yeah, it's really smart too to use specific links for the different places. So then you know which Mm -hmm. ones worked the best. And that's they say that's probably your data and corporate background coming out. So that's great. That is great. Well, this has been great. And it's been really good to talk to you and kind of get a different perspective um, on writing and really good to talk to somebody who's hybrid and um, kind of see how that's all gone for you. So what's the best thing you've done to set yourself up for success, do you think? I think just continuing to write, which again is the most basic information in the book. But I think sometimes that we get so caught up with the numbers, with the lead magnets, with the promotion activities. And ultimately the thing that's going to bring more readers to us is them finding our books and we are easier to find the more books we have out. So building, you know, writing in a series has also been a huge help in romance. That's a big thing. So yeah, continuing to be productive and to put more books out and to connect those books, I think has held me in good stead um, over the course of the years that I've been publishing. That's great. Great answer. Great answer. Tell people where they can find you and your books and all things Aussie Canadian US. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my website is www.stephanie-london.com and that's Stephanie with an F because my parents wanted to make my life difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and all my socials and newsletter and everything's on the website. So that's like a great port of call to start there. Very good. Right. Okay. Well, well, thank you for being here. We appreciate it so much. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. It has been great to talk to you. And we'll have all those links in the show notes and they'll be at the wish I'd known them podcast.com. And thanks to Alexa Larberg for editing and producing the podcast and to Adriel Wiggins for doing all our admin. We'll see everybody next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the wish I'd known them podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.